Hello, and welcome again to the Inner Sanctum from the Moth Sanctuary. Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm Chloe. And we are here today to do a little retrospective on season three of Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary, a third season, which is kind of a strange thought when I think back to when it all started. Our baby lockdown project is all grown up. Yeah, and it's now doing its own thing. And uh, yeah, so this one, it's uh, it's been a bit of a different one this year. It's eight episodes versus the ten that we have done for the previous seasons. Uh, I feel like this is a hard one to do. Yeah, I think because this is the first season that we've done where we've both been fully back at work. Yeah. Full time on the day job. It's been tricky. Yeah, yeah, and you know, not just the day job, but uh, obviously we've got our own day-to-day lives. But we've we've also had uh, the the big show that we've done this year, which again, for some reason, just felt felt like it was a, a big undertaking, uh, more so than usual. So, for anyone who doesn't follow Moth Sanctuary, the theatre company, we put on a performance at Cheltenham Literature Festival in 2022 where essentially our company was taken over by the king in yellow yeah the king in yellow was our was our um production of choice this year and it was it was one of those uh one of those shows where we were intentionally trying to be as off-putting as possible um purely because of the subject matter of it of it being an entity which uh corrupts and causes madness and influences in its own insidious way we really wanted to create something that was going to challenge audiences and I think I think we were successful with that I think we were too but we just inadvertently also went a little bit crazy under the king's influence (laughs) I sympathize with HP Lovecraft going crazy in his room to a degree following this show yeah yeah because yeah because of course it was uh it was Robert W Chambers who wrote uh, the original king in yellow um and it, he, the character had such an influence on the works of H.P. Lovecraft that it became uh, the character Hasta, Cthulhu's brother in the Cthulhu mythos. Um, so yeah, we, we've had that that sort of looming around us, which I think might have bled over a little bit into our writing uh, of these stories as well. In, yeah, in terms I think of... this is the first season where we've had a kind of cosmic horror story um, whereas traditionally we've been very sort of period gothic Victorian style horror and this is the first time we've had something that's a bit more monstrous um, creeping its way in which has been yeah. fun yeah been been lots of fun but uh, yeah so like I said we we're going to try and do a um, a season retrospective as it were um, where we're just going to go through all of the stories that we have uh, we've we've made for this season and we will just go through how they were made uh, some of the inspiration behind them some of the messages so I guess one of the first things to note was that this year was the first year that we've had you both open and close the season book ended book ended <laughs> and it of course started with portrait of a husband yeah Good story. (laughs) This was a a really kind of visceral story to write, I think, as well as 
to read or to listen to. Um, it took me a really long time to get this story right. Um, but yeah, Eleonora was living rent-free in my head for a long time, both before and after I finished this story. I've got to say, like from, from my side of things, when I first read the story, Eleonora is just such a good character. Um, it really carries the whole thing in a way which is both which you which you both empathize with and in a way where you go yeah that's that's a scary individual <laughs> i think she she's one of those characters where she's almost like the embodiment of the ugly side of grief mm. you feel an instant kind of empathy with her because yeah. of the situation that she's in but the things that she does, the way she behaves, the way she conducts herself following this this traumatic incident is just so awful that you you kind of hate her at the same time. Like she's not supposed to be a sympathetic character who you coo over and go, oh, poor, poor dear. She's genuinely terrible. Um, but that's also really fun to write. Like, it's fun to write somebody who's a bad guy at the same time as somebody who's, you know, complicated and, and human. Yeah, and somebody whose motivations you understand, however flawed they may be. Because um, that's one thing, actually, is, is this notion of how grief forces her to memorialize in a mm. way which is just damaging it's not a realistic reflection of the life that she and her husband have had together and the the narrative that she is creating almost kind of gets embodied in this in this terrible pursuit of the perfect portrait and i think that's that's part of it as well is that it's a bit of a treatise on how we chase after perfection and in chasing after the perfect you lose everything that's actually there so in in the way that she's constantly chasing this this perfect portrait mm. she she sacrifices everything else that she has you know her home her sanity the relationship with her family she just throws it all away for this one perfect thing yeah and when she achieves it it's it's not what she wanted anyway but she's going to pretend that it is. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, she's pretending that the life that she had was perfect. What she has now is also perfect. And she's going to forget about the fact that she's actually hurting the person that she's, you know, professing yeah, the, to the love. Yeah, the people that she says she loves. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting... Um, it was a really interesting story to write mm. in that sense because I think out of all of them, the kind of dead husband is... is really more the victim in it um because he he has no agency he's essentially brought back into this story and trapped and he can't do anything about it even though he's trying um and she's essentially letting him suffer to make herself feel better and it's um yeah i i just really loved the fact that she was sort of such a an abhorrent human being in this story. It was really, really fun to write someone so mean. How, how do you think that she compares to some of the other characters that you've put together before in terms of your enjoyment of writing them, um, how clearly you see them 
in your mind when you're when you're writing them yeah i feel like she's um well this this story is up there with the witch elm in terms of how sort of clearly i saw the the characters and how defined they were in my head mm. um and i think sometimes when you're writing characterization is the hardest part like getting somebody's personality getting their motivations can be really elusive when you're writing but I feel like I I had Eleonora like delivered to me in my brain fully formed and she almost wrote the story herself which is a a kind of weird and disturbing um process but also quite fun to just get swept up in in somebody else and and kind of live in that person's brain for a while was it the same for the sort of environment that she's in because the house and everything around it when I was reading it for the first time was so very clear and vivid you know the notion of the the fireplace where the portrait hangs and where she's throwing all of her stuff around and just sitting and brooding I I could see that room so clearly (laughs) yeah that that scene was the the first one that I had Mm. and that was kind of the enduring one throughout this Mm. kind of all being based around this this one room with this huge fireplace like almost like a Tudor banqueting hall where you would have like the portrait of the master of the house at the end of the table is that's kind of how I how I saw it um but yeah that scene where she's sitting in the chair completely you know blind drunk on brandy throwing glasses at walls that that was the thing that started the whole snowball rolling um but yeah, I feel like the rest of the house was almost un- inconsequential. It was it was all about that room and that scene and that fireplace. And that was kind of where where my, my mind took me when I started writing it and didn't leave. Yeah, it's a I mean, it's a real strong opener, but the way in which it leaves you with her letting this person who, if they are alive, just sitting on the wall and just not being allowed to let them go that's a that's a real humdinger of a of an ending mm. gets you with both barrels yeah and the idea that you know even when she's gone the portrait's always going to be there always yeah. like yeah. oh new still family creepy. move in yeah and it's just he, there he he's is just there on the watching walls. <laughs> yeah. it's like when people say like paintings follow them around the room that's that's how I imagine that's how I imagine her husband just watching everybody coming into his house going, what am I doing here <laughs> until he gets sold at uh, at auction or yeah. something <laughs> sold at Christie's for an inordinate <laughs> amount of money and given a little holiday yeah yeah so that was that was the season opener um and then after that we moved into body of work which was really a, a late contribution to the series Mm. for it being the second episode it it was written god maybe only in at the beginning of december perhaps uh it was a real quick turnaround on that one Mm. and um i got really excited by the idea though yeah and and i think i think part of it came from because i i had written i'd written two other stories um and neither of them were really sitting with me right, if you know what I mean. And, and one of them was nearly finished in terms of its production. And then I got this kernel of an idea as soon as as soon as it fell in. I was like, oh, no, that's the one that is missing from this overall 
display of the season that's the one thing that's missing this really intense first person tale um because i really like writing in first person anyway mm. and um, you know me i love a murder story i think every season should have a murder story yeah to be honest and and it's it's a it's a murder story which doesn't actually have anything supernatural about it because there are other stories that are within the this season mm. where there are murders occurring but they're yeah, not... this one's just a good old-fashioned yeah, good old-fashioned killer grizzly yeah and and, a, and an obsessive mind as well because you know i i have synesthesia and whenever i am scoring say a penny dreadful or whenever i am scoring a project i know how it's supposed to sound and i can completely empathize with that obsession of trying to get something sounding just right i mean the idea of scoring a story where you're literally creating instruments out of the human body was uh was a bit of a conundrum for you when you actually got to that point <laughs> and, and that was the other thing that i wanted to do because obviously when it comes to when it comes to the realization of what the what the main character or the narrator is trying to pursue i could try and replicate that but it's a it's a difficult thing for him and the story to try and articulate. It'd be even harder for me to, so, and that's why we went with the option of it being after the first you know minute, there's no score throughout the rest of it, um, because I liked the idea of there being a story that was about somebody who is who is relentless in their pursuit of music, that features no music at all. It's just a little little drone underneath. For atmosphere and and that's it uh, it's a nice um it's a nice experience listening to it and trying to imagine what those sounds would be like though yeah and and i think it was that so i, I got a text message from my mum the other day um Hi, and, she was, <laughs> and she was saying about how um it was, it was the one that she couldn't get through because the notion of somebody recording th those sounds solely or, or or doing those things solely for the purposes of recording those sounds freaked her out mm. just too much the, just that <laughs> thought that somebody would be uh that would be of that mindset it's very buffalo bill isn't it yeah yeah it is <laughs> in and, a highbrow but, way <laughs> <laughs> in an artistic way i mean not to say that that making clothing isn't uh artistic or shades, but... <laughs> you know <laughs> out of human skin indeed but yeah i mean it was i'm i'm so glad that I, I know that it was late, but I'm so glad that it came along when it did, because I, I feel like it does add just another layer to um, to the season. So yeah, it was it was one that I'm I'm very pleased to have as part of the season. Excellent. Mm. I mean, anybody who's who's been watching you, I think, will appreciate this too. If you imagine Joe Goldberg's obsession with books, this this guy's obsession with music is probably on a par with that. Yeah. Another thing that's that's actually you you've just made me think about it, it, it using that reference because of course Joe is obsessed with women as well. Mm -hmm. But what is actually really surprising about this one, and it, I I think it kind of happened by accident, but around about this time, this sort of thing was on my mind anyway. There's nothing that genders the narrator. Mm. So as much as this, because it's a, a male or a male identifying person. Um, giving the narration in the recording mm. that's the only thing that genders 
the story. Mm. This could be done from a female perspective. And I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit that I haven't <laughs> I haven't done a female version. <laughs> Give of it the, the Lydia Tar treatment. Yeah, exactly. Because because one of the things I like is the fact that um, it's not it's not about anything romantic. It's not about anything sexual or anything along those lines. It is just somebody in relentless pursuit of their art. Mm. And I, I know that we've had a discussion about this before, about how throughout history, the muse has been abused. Mm. Um, especially female muses have been seen as somehow less than because... Or just reduced to the sum of their parts, you know, with no opinions, no agency, despite the fact that many of the kind of great artists, muses were artists in their own right. They were students. Um, I mean, I went to a talk at the Literature Festival in Cheltenham last year, which was literally doing a deep dive into this and saying how, you know, there are so many of Rodin's works, for example, which may or may not have been made by his students who were largely very young girls who weren't permitted to study art in their own right um and how you know famous and and noteworthy artists like that use their power to coerce these these women into doing things that they weren't comfortable with in order to to get themselves educated or to pursue that their artistic aspirations so it's really interesting um that that's kind of come up in in this piece as well that you know ultimately the muse is is made voiceless despite the fact that they are the one who creates this this person's unique sound mm. it's a very um and and somebody, very sort of poignant yeah and somebody who in, in the story has has accomplishments of their own you know they've they're working with this person not because you know, they no, by are, choice. Yeah, it's, it's the fact that they are a professional and they've been to work with many different people and they've comported themselves in a way which is um, which is professional and they get on board and, you know, the, the model's attitude throughout the duration of this sitting is... Consummate it, professional. It's a consummate professional. Like, she may not understand it, but she kind of eventually learns what, what it's all about and how it works and she's going to give it her all. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that was something just from our discussions when, when you brought that up that I really wanted to add into the story as well. Mm. So then we go on to uh, a story called On the Wind, uh, the story about a ship that encounters uh, what is essentially a ghost ship out in the middle of nowhere. And this was the very first story that I finished production on. So it was scored it was uh, mastered, everything along those lines. I think by, say, June or July, to the point where when I went back to listen to it recently when the when the season was released, there was loads of things that I'd done in there that I'd completely forgotten about. <laughs> With this one, it's difficult to tell how successful it is purely because when you have a setup like a ghost ship (laughs) what is going to be a satisfying ending that hasn't kind of been done before and I think that's where the whole banshee thing came from was was trying to defy expectations and 
in a certain way. Yeah, you didn't necessarily find a ghost, you found something else. Yeah, and even though there are ghosts there, that's not the only thing. Like, the ghosts are there because of this banshee. Mm. But yeah, it's it was one of those ones where it surprised me hearing it back and I, I hope it was successful I mean what what would you do if, if you were presented with something or what would you expect if you had set up like abandoned ship or you know kind of like event horizon maybe yeah see I think if it was me my first instinct would be like oh there's some kind of disease like stay the hell away from that um which obviously doesn't make for a very good story if they turn sail and and go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there has to be something that lures them there to find out what's what's actually happened to this ship. And I think that's that's the interesting side of it because there's you know there's almost a the kind of siren's call and that they can't leave it alone. They've got to find out what's going on. And mm. then obviously when they actually get there, they realise very quickly that this was a big mistake. And it's, again, it's it's a difficult one. I hope that it went in a direction that people weren't necessarily expecting. But um, yeah, it it was. I guess that was just the big challenge, or the first big challenge that I encountered with this season was just how do you pay off a setup like ship? Is it? It's the Mary Celeste. <laughs> and and trying to make it <laughs> trying to make it interesting when you've only got one setting to play with. You know, you've got a ship, which is a, conf- a confined space mm-hmm. in the doldrums, so it can't move. There's nobody on it because they're all dead. <laughs> like, what what can I do to make this scenario interesting mm. and surprising and not just creepy or unsettling? Yeah, so yeah. I think what's the, a good payoff? The introduction of the the banshees a really fun way to do that. I say fun. Obviously, the story is not fun. It's <laughs> really scary. <laughs> <laughs> Then that brings us on to uh, Bleeding Maria. Bleeding Maria. I like this one. Yeah. It's got a a sort of nice um, folkloric inspiration for this story. Yeah. It's it's inspired by some true events. um, And it is more or less a fictionalized retelling-ish of the story <laughs> with some embellishments with some embellishments <laughs> with some change of circumstances in some instances but um it's basically based upon this case from Cumbria uh at a place called Muncaster Castle which was all to do with a love triangle rivalry um between two of the people that worked for the castle um i've been to this castle it is it, an incredible place the views are insane it overlooks this tiny little town called Ravenglass if you can even call it a town it's probably more of a village and we were there when when I was there we heard this story about this love triangle and one of the women had successfully uh or was was courting I believe it was a footman and this other girl was very unhappy about the fact that the two of them had gotten together. So she hired two men to go to this girl's house in the middle of the night, knock on the door and say that her her lover had been in an accident um, and needed needed her to come to him really quickly because he and this might be his last moments. On the way to this fictional place where they had to go, they stopped by the side of the road pushed her up against a tree and shot her and then threw her into the river 
um, and she kept coming back and su- supposed the body kept washing up. Oh. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a horrible thought. Yeah. Um, and her ghost is said to still be around the streets um, that surround the castle, basically. Then you have this notion of the bleeding tree, which apparently when this tree that she was shot against was cut down, it did start to bleed, hence the, the, the bleeding tree from the story. Nobody in the town would touch the wood that came from said tree, so they had to ship it to London. Uh, obviously, for this story, we've repurposed it so that it's actually it actually becomes the instrument of justice um, for for the poor girl that is murdered. And yeah, I, I think you did a beautiful job on narrating it as well. I think you gave it all the right levels of. Uh, her Miss- delusions of grandeur and because <laughs> you said didn't you as we were recording that you just didn't like the character no I found it a real struggle to to read because I was like oh I just don't like her she's awful like, yeah she- <laughs> it's your typical introverted shy loner who's never really made an effort but hasn't made an effort because she believes she's so much better than Yeah, I think I think the difference between having a bad guy like um like Eleonora, ultimately her actions are unequivocally bad, but she's got substance to her personality. There's something about her character. She's very, you know, headstrong and determined. And you get the impression that she's always been a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. whereas whereas in in this story, I just found her really annoying. Mm. Is that you? Why? Where does this entitlement come from, little girl? Like, yeah. so she does nothing of <laughs> note to be noticed. Struggle. By, yeah, yeah. She does nothing of note to be noticed by anyone. No, and, and then yet. the one thing that she does do, where she actually kind of steps out of her comfort zone and goes, right, I'm going to do something about this to improve my life, is just a terrible action. Mm. And then when she has thing. the notoriety, she doesn't want it anymore. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like and fickle. Yeah. It's it's. A, but I believe that there's there's a lot of people that are like that. Mm. You know, I feel like that is a personality type. I've met people. <laughs> You've met this person. <laughs> I've met this person. <laughs> Woe betide you if you listened to that story and thought it was about you. It was. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was, and that one also I think has my favorite score of mm. of of the entire season. I love the um, the retribution at the end of it though, where the tree becomes. The, the downfall I find that that a really nice sort mm. of way to, to end things that it kind of comes full circle yeah that the and tree takes her back yeah it's a great visual in terms of just this gnarled really nasty looking haphazardly wood, put together yeah. gallows that is just designed to be nasty yeah and the fact that it is named after the victim as well I yeah. think is uh it's a the fun hate-filled way. thing, isn't it? That's come to wreak its revenge. Yeah, well, it's it's you know legal justice done in a personal way. Yeah, like this is personal to you. This is personal to us. It's got a very as... Elizabethan feel to it yeah. in terms of like you know the whole village turning out to see the <laughs> hanging. <laughs> yeah, very very uh, Marie Antoinette. Yes, <laughs> gather around to watch this person of notoriety's execution. Yeah, yeah, and then and then we come on to. White Raven, which is a story about these people who have a coach and kind of commit their murders in plain sight. Or at governor. Or at governor. Makes me think of like, you know, I don't know, 
just makes me think of London in the times of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of supposed to be reminiscent of that. There's a mention in the story which is um, saying about how there were a few murders that were attributed to another killer or that also plied a trade, mm. which is supposed to be like a Sweeney Todd reference, basically. Right. You know, it's somebody who, who also belongs to this guild of, of craftspeople that's guild of murderers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, like a secret society that one was again it's it's another one like with uh, on the wind where the setup was good in terms of when i was was thinking about it it's like oh yeah this is a really good setup and it's like well how do you get your payoff in a way which is interesting mm. um and again hopefully it panned out the way it was supposed to and... yeah i think having um having the introduction of the supernatural element in what could otherwise just be a kind of standard you know murder mystery type story yeah. is um is a an interesting concept yeah like the one thing that scares these people is something that they can't explain something they can't get the upper hand over yeah and and they've lost the element of surprise i mean one of the one of the reasons why the central that you're following your point of view character that you're following from the beginning is the victim and you think that the victim is going to last to the end and then you know psycho style killed halfway through <laughs> is because you know it's, it's to iterate the fact that these people rely on subterfuge and getting the upper hand and so all of a sudden when they are the ones that are outsmarted yeah they're they're the ones that are caught off guard because they're not ready for what is in this area they're not ready for the for the pauper to come into the the, their cab all of a sudden they're on the back foot yeah um you can't trick a spirit yeah (laughs) and they're expecting to get to this new land of opportunity and actually there's no land nobody's ever been allowed to get there (laughs) it's like the inverse of the american dream we got there and it was terrible (laughs) (laughs) But I remember uh, recording this one. I had a cold, which oh yeah, this mm, yeah influenced which, your performance quite significantly. It did, it did. So I had this I had this really nasty cold. It was just after we had done the the King and Yellow story, and you which know, made all of us sick. Made all of us sick. I mean, we, we gave everything we could <laughs> it was to like that story. Freshest flu, but absolutely. For us. Um, so yeah, so yeah, we we then went and uh, or I then went and recorded this story and I had a cold and of course we had the beggar in the story and what was supposed to just be a casual you know put on voice became quite possibly the most revolting thing that I've <laughs> ever committed to a microphone ever that was a once in a lifetime performance there. never gonna get it back I expect awards for that performance <laughs> I'm not gonna lie <laughs> yeah, please don't bring that character back in any subsequent stories let's try not uh, Speakers of the Dead was um, our sixth story. This one's been been really creeping people out. This one's surprisingly popular in terms of downloads as well. I think yeah. it might be the outside of maybe Body of Work. It's it's got the highest ratio of downloads in terms of its position, which is just it just goes to show like you just don't know which ones are going to be popular. Mm. I thought people were going to get bored by this one. You did. I remember you I remember <laughs> you saying I'm a bit worried about this one. <laughs> I was so worried that all it is is just two people in a room talking. It's waiting for Godot. 
It's waiting for Godot, basically. <laughs> it's two people in a room talking, and that could just be death if you've just got one person telling another person a story. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, what what made me want to keep it in was, strange enough, the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Mason Hale, I think, is a really interesting fella. This sort of notably moral person. But, you know, as much as he is moral, he's more than willing to be ruthless and horrible and just absolutely terrible to, to somebody who he feels deserves it. Mm, and it's he like is, righteous fury. Yeah, and he is relentless in his pursuit. Um, but I also love the fact that what gets him there is the trail of bodies that William Ross leaves behind. Mm. Um, and and he's he's then able to to track them down through this supernatural gift that you know everybody's willing to give this guy up and help the person on his you know moral on his righteous mission, including the guy's mother who's dead in the basement, and it's ultimately his mother that that leads to Mason getting in the house. Um, so yeah, I was I was really happy with the way that this one turned out. Because I think I kind of feel like I want to bring Mason Hale back again some some way. <laughs> yeah, I... this is one of the ones that that people have said to to me in particular that like they really struggled to get get through this one because it really scared them. Really? Yeah. So I think you captured the um, the atmosphere particularly well. But you know the concept of somebody going through life on this pursuit, you know following the clues that dead people have left behind is Mm. yeah pretty scary I'm trying to think of another instance where we have had a story which is just men like manly men doing manly (laughs) things manly men doing manly things yeah like uh, and aside from the mention of of William's mum there's no real other female characters in the story Mm. It's a very masculine in terms of, you know, like just violence and being gritty and yeah, just being really sort of Quite aggressive, aggressive and menacing. I think maybe that's more, yeah. more to the point. It's 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 only male figures and it's outwardly aggressive. And I th- don't think we've ever done anything really like that before. No, a bit of a departure from our, our usual style. Yeah, because I think for as much as, you know, we tried to keep or at least in my mind, whenever I'm writing, I tried to keep track of things like body counts in terms of, <laughs> you know, male to female ratios. Do we have, you know, an adequate proportion so this isn't just women being victims all the time? Mm. And then conversely, it's also, you know, we have enough women who are the bad guys as well. Yeah, I've had um, to make a concerted effort not to harm any children fictionally in this season when we kind of established that I uh, have a bit of a habit of uh, yeah, killing children one. in my stories. You're the child one, I forgot that. <laughs> yeah. Which was conveniently pointed out to me by a child. <laughs> <laughs> we are an equal opportunities podcast. No one is safe. <laughs> no one is safe. Yes. You are all victims. <laughs> okay. And then we came on to... Um, the apartment in Paris. Yeah. This was my idea or my attempt at writing a love story. So, you know, of course that ended in some kind of grisly death. <laughs> I mean, we, we it could be two 
grizzly potentially deaths. two grizzly deaths i think there's actually three grizzly deaths in the in the story um so yeah really romantic but i think it really works i mean <laughs> those those first few minutes um that that opening scene with the uh, with the window being opened mm, the thunderstorm and the thunderstorm like genuinely romantic mm. um and when I, I remember when i was scoring it i was like no this needs to be this isn't scary this isn't no it, this it, is this is jane austen <laughs> yeah this needs to have something which is really deep and heartfelt and because you know you could you could argue oh it's very quick for these people to to um to get together but i think so, that's kind of the po- the point of it i exactly. think you know the the character is very much desperately looking for this new life this new her and she's kind of thrown herself in head first and then sort of slowly starts to realize that something's not quite as it seems mm. or things aren't as they should be and the more she looks into it the less she wants to I and suppose. i remember that really creeping me out actually when i when i first heard slash listened to it I, I didn't know where it was going to go. I thought I knew where it was going to go, but <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> but that—that that was the thing: was that even the direction that it was going, or the direction I thought it was going to go, creeped me out. Mm-hmm. This notion of this person that you're with might not be who you think they are. Whatever is going on in your life, you know this this whole thing of Being wrapped up in your own version of events. Yeah, yeah. Like you think you're you're just experiencing a whirlwind romance, or you know you just think you're making even making friends, you know, and then for that to kind of get flipped, mm. and you don't know who it is. And as somebody who has lived alone as well, I think there's that creeping dread of oh god, someone's been in my home how did they get in here mm-hmm. are they still in here where are they you know how are they doing this like nightmare fuel yeah no i think and i think what's interesting as well or what was great for me um when it came to scoring it was the the central love theme um which was born out of that scene in front of the window in front of the storm which is supposed to really have an intense feeling of just mm, that being, big sort of sweeping yeah, theme just deeply spiritually affected throughout the story the the structure around that starts getting looser and looser and looser until you kind of get to the the sort of uh, deconstructed version of it at the end but it was really lovely to be able to start from that point of just real intense just beautiful emotion just just it was a beautiful visual you could make something sonically that was beautiful as well and then then pick it apart yeah (laughs) pulling on that thread and everything just unravels which is what i think a lot of people do in relationships anyway yeah you know you start off and there's this really intense feeling with another person and then eventually throughout time you'll start overthinking or you'll start they'll show you parts of themselves that maybe they kept hidden before and yeah you don't necessarily know if you like that or not yeah and i think that's what's really wonderful about this story is that actually without the supernatural element mm. without even the stalkerish element there's still something that you can follow in terms of everybody's experience and in, 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 yeah. the relationships breaking down and i think it's got like the i think the the apartment building kind of has a bit of a life of its own as well because um 
I feel like everybody who has ever lived in an apartment building will have had a neighbor like like the ones in this story where they just they're in everybody's business and they know everything and they've got keys to everyone's flat to let the gas man in and you mm-hmm. know just the idea that there's this this person who's kind of just knows everything about everyone and that they're the one who kind of deals the devastating blow is like what are you talking about mm. <laughs> this guy's dead yeah and then the whole world just like just you starts... literally see it falling apart around her and and the thing is that when when you hear that that i mean again that's the part that that gave me goosebumps the mm. first time just because the the notion of being so intimate with somebody and actually know that person is dead that to me just yeah <laughs> chills all over because somebody is imitating it and for what reason and i think that's that's the kind of fun part of the story because you you don't really know who they are what they are you don't know if they're another person that's pretending to to be them and assuming their identity you don't know if it's him but he's a ghost yeah. You know, you don't know if he's like a, you know, a revenant. He's come back from the dead. You never kind of find out what what happens um, or how he how he gets there. And I think that that kind of also adds to the creepiness of it. That you know, you never find out. Yeah, I mean, must be frustrating for some people. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, it's. I think we're all living. I mean, for a bit of context, I previously lived in a flat where somebody had hanged themselves um i didn't know it until the very end of my stay that gossipy neighbor was the one who told you right was the one who told me (laughs) absolutely absolutely so we've all been in those buildings but but it's that notion of living alongside the history of a place Mm. um and the stories that the you know the walls could tell you if they could speak exactly you know in in the in the building that we're in right now this dates back back to sort of regency periods. Yeah. So, and and what we live in as our flat is the previous servants' quarters. So the amount of people that must have been around on these floors mm. and in and out of these rooms and and you know, we live alongside it. Even in We're a new build. Even in a new build. I remember when um, my parents bought um, their second house together. The development was on top of what used to be a hospital right so even though the houses the buildings themselves were new they were on the footprints of what had been a hospital and it was a big thing when people were looking at this development that they didn't want their house to be on top of the morgue wow because they thought it would be haunted but yeah this one also had a touch of uh of time travel yeah because i i wrote this story for last year's season for the 2021 um season and we just couldn't really find a place for it to sit within the stories that we had there so we kind of just parked it for a while um and yeah and then we revisited it when we were working on on season three and it kind of found its home here instead so yeah yeah, i've had that had that one under my belt for a while and I think it's a nice change of pace, especially after <laughs> Speakers of the Dead to then come a into softer. a story like this, which is much more intense and built around beauty and built around honest intentions. Because, mm. you know, you, your main character is coming into it with such a sense of trust. Um, so to have that be the baseline of your story 
is such a lovely change of pace between two very chaotic stories mm. which brings us very neatly on to the finale of this <laughs> season proper yeah um which is screaming in the night yeah this story is one that i feel like i've been trying to write for years um because i spent some time just after i finished university working at a psychiatric hospital and it wasn't a big you know victorian asylum like in in the story it it wasn't anything like that but it was a deeply unsettling place and not because of the people who lived there it was just a really weird scary horrible place that everyone was a little bit terrified of um and i remember distinctly that there there were kind of three three or four areas of the building so you had like a ladies wing a men's wing you had an upstairs which was um people um who were higher functioning so lived a little bit more independently they just happened to all be men and then there was a separate unit which was essentially for rehabilitation so people who were um able to live without kind of intervention um but who had some condition that was preventing them from from living in their own home so for example that we had some residents there who had really severe epilepsy so they needed sort of nursing intervention if they were to have a seizure um but other than that they were completely sort of capable of taking care of themselves um and there was a corridor in between that rehab unit and the rest of the building and it just terrified everybody like there was something in there where even the most cynical staff members would agree that there was something nasty about that corridor just a vibe or... yeah like a vibe a feeling you know some of the residents felt it we felt it there was an absolutely wonderful nurse who i used to work with um and she was the one who who basically was convinced that it was haunted. Right. She was like, "That that's ghosts. There are right. ghosts in there." Um, to the point where, actually, on one night shift, one of my colleagues literally put on a bed sheet and ran around the outside of the building just to scare her, which was both simultaneously <laughs> really mean and also really funny. Was it at night time? <laughs> it was at night time. Oh my the god! The big white bed sheet. No thank you. Um, but yeah, like she was convinced that the place was haunted. Um, and there were all sorts of things that would happen there, which nobody could explain. Like just really strange goings on. Things would move. You would hear noises. Um, and there was a particular, there was a particular person there um, who had this habit of waking up in the middle of the night and just screaming at the corner of their room wow. and nobody could work out what was wrong um they, they were obviously just you know woken in the middle of the night and just yelling and and like you know distressed about something yeah um and again we were like oh, can they see the ghosts right and that became like a, a kind of running thing that that we all kind of believed that this this person could see the ghosts in this was building it just the one? and they were trying to warn us. Was it just the one patient? Yeah, it was one person. Wow. One person. Um, 
but I think Sorry, not patient resident 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah and I think that that kind of that stuck with me I think that kind of spooky supernatural like belief that there was something in this building that was like a dark presence mm. but also just the politics of people being in a place like that you know this wasn't a, an NHS run hospital it was privately owned privately operated the people who were there paid a sickening amount of money for you know the the treatment they were receiving um but nobody ever got better and I think you know that that was the thing that scared me is that these people aren't here to improve they're not here to get better they're here to be contained and it very much felt like everything that was being done was just to maintain this status quo don't have too many incidents so we don't get you know people asking questions wow. don't you know don't push them too hard don't ask too much of them just keep everything you know on this sort of level where nothing really happens um and just you know let life just plod on and i guess any sort of you know i think you make make mention of it in the story itself about one of the um one of the residents patients of in in terms of the story um making drawings and paintings mm. and then eventually that's just being stopped yeah i imagine the, then it's a similar sort of situation in in reality and i think it's a, a lot of it is the way things are described right you know you and i might look at somebody coloring in a coloring book or drawing or not filling in the lines and go huh, they're having fun in that scenario it's they're engaging in drawing behavior you right. know everything so, is it becomes clinical yeah which then becomes subhuman yes and i think that that's something to be studied yeah or, or something to be prevented right you know the idea that you know creative thought thinking outside the box was somehow dangerous or gonna be damaging for you like you can't overstimulate them in case something bad happens mm. um and i think there was a real kind of crossover between this idea that the concept of an institution and the way that they're expected to be run is kind of dark and malevolent and also this idea that like oh is there something spooky and supernatural mm. here um and I think that the idea kind of converged on me when we were doing the King in Yellow show in there. I'm like, oh yeah, what if it's what if it's this unseeable, unknowable, malevolent force? So it's not it's not a person, it's not people, it's not um, you know, it's not the the man as such, mm. but it's this kind of scary, horrifying, intrusive, you know being that gets into your head and that, and that wants to um, be there you know and yeah like that's you, feeding off you when when your when your characters manage to get away from the asylum in the story all of a sudden they start becoming clearer headed it's mm. like actually being free of that institution being free of that culture is actually going to allow certain people to get better or to mm. to actually start thinking clearly once they're clear of that that dark malevolent presence mm. um which i guess you know in some ways is as you we were saying the culture around these sorts of institutions yeah um, and i think it it's i think the big thing is that i didn't i didn't want i didn't want it to be you know 
damaging in any way to be like oh you know people who have mental health problems are are crazy and i did i really didn't or want... that it's easily solved by, yeah oh, just get them away and everybody's gonna be better just let them you know there are some people that have very yeah strict um requirements and needs and i didn't want it to be a case of that oh they're all just imagining things mm. i think that was the big thing because um you know when you're dealing with things like psychosis for example just because it's not real to you as an observer doesn't mean it's not real to the person that's experiencing it so i think i wanted eddie as the main character to actually experience this this thing Mm. um to then be able to you know not necessarily understand but but empathize with these other people to go yeah this is something that is happening yeah this and, is and real. see that, it, that it's not right as yeah. well like you know there's something up with this yeah um but then of course getting dragged into almost getting dragged into the 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 influence that this presence has mm. by what happens to him um you know in trying to do good and trying to step outside the box or try and see if something can be done differently he then gets incarcerated himself yeah um, puts himself in the firing line you know becomes victim to the things that that the people who he's been working with have experienced um and because they're in on it as well like yeah you know they've been brought into brought in under the influence of this presence as much as the the people that are staying there are mm. and they're there to you know to keep it that way yeah to make sure nothing changes yeah it's one of those stories where it, it does have like a real kind of moral heart which i think is something we've kind of got a a reputation for now it's not mm. just you know it's not just a story that's there to scare you it's a story to make you think as well um yeah. and to question you know like why why are things this way yeah and i, th I think that's one of the you, you know if there's something that with the penny dreadfuls in general all of the strongest ones do have a moral message and and you know we tried to get that with all of them as much as we want to be entertaining or as much we, we still want to have that message because otherwise it is just you know self-indulgent or it's becoming just white noise which is an exercise in just well how creepy can we be how loud can we be how much mm. can we repulse you and i think that's not really what these stories are about no that's not not what we're not what we're in it for anyway no and i, th and I think so to have have such a, a heart to screaming in the night yeah be, as, as a way of closing out the season proper yeah i think that's that's a really strong way to go out and so that brings us on then to the, well i mean that's the end of that's the, the official end of that's the, the season. official end of the season we mic do drop <laughs> <laughs> we do we do then have a little uh bonus episode that coincided with uh valentine's day yeah well we we kind of put the series out and then realized that we were gonna finish like what the week before valentine's yeah um and we liked the idea of doing a, a spooky valentine's special yeah um and it was so, yeah. it, it kind of came so around about the time that i i was writing body of work i was also uh sketching out this idea and for me it was more an exercise in writing this wasn't supposed to be a penny dreadful this wasn't even really a story um or at least i didn't see it as a, a story in the way that we would normally tell it it's more like flash fiction than 
yeah a short story and and i even went about sort of trying to find places to submit it to because it was more you know it was of a different style to how I would normally write. So for me, it was an exercise in playing with style. And it was you who actually suggested that, well, if we've got, you know, the Valentine's Day coming up, you've got that little piece. It might be nice to do that one. And um, I'm really glad that we did. Me too. It might be one of my favorite things that we've ever put out. Yeah, I think it's... it's um... It's as erotic as it is unsettling. Yeah, that's the, in and terms that's, of the content, it's not necessarily a horror story. But at the same time, it's kind of eerie. Mm. So you know this this notion of because one of the big things that I wanted to do when I was writing it, or, or the thing that came to me as a scene, was the fact that I wanted to have this this visitor that comes in through the window. Um, I didn't want it to be visiting a woman first of all. I wanted the person that it's visiting to be a man. I wanted the point of view to be coming from a man because you see so little of things that could be considered to be erotic for men and how they experience it and how they experience it in a way which isn't them being the person that's doing something, mm. if you know what them I mean. Them being like, in the... the- well, what could be considered the vulnerable position. Yeah, yeah, or sure. Or the submissive position. The submiss- yeah, the submissive position. And especially seeing as though the character describes themselves as having, you know, strong legs and things like that and, and, a, and a hairy chest. These things that are generally considered to be very virile and very, or just being the epitome of what a strong man should be. Especially in the horror genre, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then to have, I mean, in my head, I imagine somebody like Tom Selleck. Oh, oh Magnum PI. <laughs> Magnum PI. Like, imagine Tom Selleck. I had being... not imagined Magnum PI when right? I listened to this story, just for the record. <laughs> But it's this notion of something happening to a figure like this and it coming from a presence that you don't know if it's male, you don't know if it's female. It, it, again, to us, we were, we were describing it and both of us saw it the same way. Mm. We saw it as this kind of genderless gargoyle creature mm. or, or grotesque creature, sorry to get it correct. Um, <laughs> Nerd about um, gargoyles in architecture. <laughs> But, but yeah, like if you imagine how, um, like how the the gorgons are described in ancient Greece, and that they've got you know talons and wings covered in skin, and you know big mouths and beaks, and they're fearsome creatures, and they're big and they're powerful and they're scary. I'm like, yeah, I, I just imagine it being like you know a little flock of gorgons on this guy's windowsill. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and you know that they might just be there for feeding purposes but for him he's both terrified and excited by it he, mm. he loves it when they are there you know the notion of it being so so hot that he can't sleep to start with and then him saying like oh when they've gone like the room actually feels cold because mm. of that oh I, I, I enjoy that feeling so much you know and, and I guess you could apply that to, to any sort of way of thinking if you didn't want to think of it as as you know being in any way supernatural you could look at it as a metaphor for addiction mm. you could look at it even as simply as somebody just a not, fantasy yeah just fantasy not being able to sleep and so decides to 
give themselves some relief to get themselves to sleep. <laughs> you can look at it in in any way that you want to, but for me, what was important from that that thing was that you experienced it from this strong man's perspective, and it's him in a more suppliant role. Yeah, he's not the one with the power. Form. You know, and I think that's one thing that that I think we've we've had a strong concentration on this year, especially. Um, we've we've worked with uh, two incredible performers for our King in Yellow story, um, and with that, we we've been having a look at things like so. Our King was performed by a female identifying person, um, but the character itself, the character was, itself, we we kind of described it as beyond gender. Yeah. So, you know, this this deity doesn't conform to any of the, the constraints that the human world puts mm. on it. They are they are more than that. Yeah. And, um, I, and I think And that was a fun concept. And and then trying to apply that to the season, you know, like the figure in um in White Raven, like I say, the, the, the pauper, the narrator for um body of work, they they are all these genderless forms and i think that's been a really fun thing to try and experiment with like i say i i'm especially sort of maybe maybe we might do it maybe i might just try and find a way to to get a voiceover done of body of work <laughs> which is from a female perspective just so just to see what it does to the to the story, story. experience mm. um but i love the fact that you know it's it for for the sweetness it's it's somebody getting pleasure they don't know what it's from they don't they don't care what it's from mm. you know it could be could be a creature it could be a male vampire it could be a female gorgon it could be any of those things yet what we're supposed to take yeah, away all they from care it about is that it feels good is that it feels good <laughs> they are taking something they may be drawing blood there may be something is happening to them which is making them a quote-unquote victim if you were to look at it from a vampire perspective mm. or, you know, in some way suppliant, mm. but they are drawing pleasure from it. And I think yeah, that's you something... you don't need to know what it is if yeah. it feels good. They're just going to dive in and go, okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm in for this. And that doesn't stop them from being strong during the day. It doesn't stop them from being a powerhouse or the wall as they describe themselves. It's just that when it comes to this moment, in a private moment, when I'm at home or when I'm in my bed, this feels good to me. And I just want to sit inside the pleasure and forget about what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, an, that was an interesting way to go with it. Yeah. Um, not Like I say, totally not expected. <laughs> but might be one of my favorite things that we've done. Yeah. Our first foray into eroticism in the Moth Sanctuary. Works. Yeah. It sounds good so far we'll try it some more <laughs> so yeah so that was that was season three and we're already starting on stories for season four mm-hmm. we've we've got a good batch that are coming together quite nicely we're wrestling them into being yeah um we are obviously looking into a new show for this year as well so please do follow all of the moth sanctuary socials for any updates for when that comes through we've obviously been doing these shows now for three years not one of them has been sponsored so they can come to you ad free we make them all off of our own back um we produce them all uh in our own time 
in our own bedroom in our own bedrooms <laughs> uh, you know wherever they might wherever recording might take um <laughs> But yeah, so we, we don't take any sponsorship. It all comes out to you for free. We make it for free. Obviously, anything that anybody wanted to contribute, we do have a PayPal link that helps with uh, funding uh, Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. We appreciate that not everybody has the, the means to do so. But if you do want to spare uh, anything you can, then there is a PayPal link in all of the descriptions for all of the episodes of uh, this season and season two. And there'll be one in the description for this episode. And yeah, we shall see you on the next season. So until then, I'm Andrew. I'm Chloe. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>